Lord, we thank you that this psalm is reminding us of the role of the, of the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one, the Son, which is Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. And so, Lord, I pray today that you would open up our hearts, that we would hear your voice. And Lord, as we're hearing your voice, even as the writer to the Psalms and the Hebrews later picks it up, Lord, help us not to harden our hearts. Help us not to provoke you. Help us not to be indifferent to your voice. Help us not to walk in our own way. But to hear what you're saying to us today, that we would embrace your words, that we would be tender towards you. We would hear what you're saying to us and we'd respond in belief. We'd respond by acting on what your word tells us. We just thank you for that. Lord, I pray that if we're uh, dabbling in things that are leading us astray, we may not even be aware of it. I pray today you'd bring such clarity and understanding, that you would free us, Lord, from every delusion, every lie of the enemy, every trickery, wild strategy, deception, so that we can be free to serve you with our whole hearts, Lord. Help us to fix our eyes on you. We've sung about you today, Jesus. We pray that our eyes would be there, our minds would be there, our lives would be there. We thank you for that in Jesus' name and all God's people said. Amen. You may be seated. I'm going to have you turn to the book of Hebrews. This is way in the New Testament, towards the very end of the Bible. And let me just... Uh, Start by saying, you know, we, we have a tendency to be really impressed, amazed, desirous. We like things like visions and dreams and angelic appearances and prophetic announcements. You know, we, we like this stuff. We, we want to, you know, we want God to do something spectacular, something supernatural. We're drawn to these kinds of things. We read about them in the scriptures. And so there's a a, a movement in that direction. And you know, especially if we've been Christians for a long time, sometimes we get bored with the mundane. You know, well, I've been a Christian for a long time. I know this stuff, you know. And, and so we start dabbling off into some different stuff out here. You know, it's a little more exciting, a little more tantalizing. But let me just point out to us that this hunger for a deeper understanding. I, I do believe, I have a very inquisitive mind. I love learning. And I'm learning all the time. But I think there's a good learning and there's a not so good learning. There's truth and then there's error. And we need to understand that. I think there's a lot of voices out there promising that they have a special revelation from God. And that's what false teachers have always promised, even in the first century. And they've continued to promise that all through the centuries. And usually it goes something like this. Now, how many understand that to become a follower of Christ, God's Spirit has to somehow make Christ real to you? Does everybody understand that? There's a, there's a, there's a revelatory part of the Christian life, okay? But here's what Gnosticism. Now, Gnosticism is a, a word for knowledge, and I want to take you right back to the very first story of humanity in the garden. And, and the enemy comes in the form of a serpent. And it says he was more crafty than all the creatures. And he, and he spoke to the woman, a talking serpent, you know. Pretty intense. And the serpent said, has God really said this? But let me tell you, you know, he's just holding back on you. If you eat of this tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will have knowledge that you currently do not possess. This will bring about a revelation. And he was right. It did bring about a revelation. A revelation of evil, a revelation of death. 
And so I'm not suggesting that there's not, you know, understandings out there, but sometimes it's the wrong kind of understanding, and it can lead to great destruction. We need to be aware of that. And so Gnosticism has always taught this idea that there's a secret revelation out there. There's deeper things. And, uh, you know, they've even found uh, gospels today, what they would call gospels in Egypt. And they're, they're pseudo-gospels, you know, the gospel of Thomas, the gospel of this. And the early church recognized that these were not, you know, they were not really biblical. What we would consider biblical in the sense that they were not authoritative. They were not part of the standard of the Christian life. And there was things in it that were, you know, they, they really weren't the truth. They were fabrications. And so they recognized the deception in it. But see, people today are bringing this kind of stuff up and saying, you know, who's to decide what's true and what's not true? Doesn't it kind of sound like the old serpent in the garden? And so I was just reading an article this past week. You know, in Canada today, there's a renewed spirituality. I could have said that all along. Human beings are spiritual. It says that a lot of Canadians today have no use for church. But, you know, it's kind of a smorgasbord out there. You can just kind of go to the bookstore and, and find all kinds of spiritual ideas out there. If you went down to chapters right now, you'd be shocked at how many books are on spirituality and how many books are about angels and how many books talk about spirit guides and, and special revelation. They're, all that information is out there today. And people are just kind of picking and choosing what they want. And what we don't understand is that God designed certain things a certain way. Why, why come, why, you know, spend time, make the effort, come to church? Because the Bible says we're to do this so that we can stimulate each other, encourage one another, help each other to do what's right and what's good. That's, that's the purpose of gathering together, according to the writer of Hebrews, which we're going to be looking at. And so there's this, this, this Gnosticism that's, you know, developing out there. Now, the book of Hebrews is actually going to speak to this issue in a very interesting way. This book, and I said it last week if you were here, this is an unusual book. First of all, it doesn't start out like most books. It's not even actually an epistle. It's not even a letter. It's a sermon. It was a sermon that was written down and sent. That's true. But usually when you have a letter, you have, you know, in the, in the typical ancient world, you'd have the author's name on it. In this book, there's no name of the author. So nobody knows for sure who the author is. There's been much speculation. Some think the Apostle Paul wrote it. Some say Apollos wrote it. Some say Epaphras wrote it. Others say other ideas of who wrote it. Some people say there's no way of knowing who wrote it. But we do know one thing. Whoever wrote this sermon had an eloquency about him that was very unusual. This is probably the finest Greek uh, in the entire New Testament. And the eloquency by which this person is communicating is amazing. As a matter of fact, the first four verses is actually one sentence in Greek, and it's alliterated to help people remember. Isn't that amazing? You know, we don't pick that up in English because it doesn't come across that way. You know what alliteration is. They're using the same letter over and over again so it helps people remember what the author is trying to communicate. And this beginning sentence, by the way, is actually, if you were studying preaching today, I would, I would explain to you, this is the proposition of the entire sermon. And what that means is this is what the writer wants you to understand. This is his big idea. This is the point he's trying to drive across. And everything after this is actually a development and an elaboration on what he's bringing across here in the first four verses. These verses, then, are extremely important. They're the main idea of this entire book. And so if you understand these first four verses, you're a long ways towards understanding the book. And afterwards, he's just going to begin to unpack all of these things and develop them in amazing detail. Now, almost everyone believes 
that this book was written to a group of believers who probably were Jewish in background. Now some would say, well maybe it's just you know, Gentiles who were thinking about going into Judaism. But whoever wrote it was concerned that these people, and I think they were Hebrew Christians, that they were going to revert back into life as it was before they knew Jesus Christ. They were going to go back under the old sacrificial system. And so what the author is arguing is that Jesus Christ is better than a whole bunch of things. He's First of all, he's better than the prophets. He's better than the angels. He's better than the law, the animal sacrifices, and the Old Testament priesthood. As a matter of fact, Jesus' sacrifice is so much more superior than the Old Testament sacrifices because he only had to do it one time. And when he did it, it forever took, it forever dealt with the issue of sin. Whereas in the Old Testament, they were doing sacrifices every day for the sake of sin. And a constant reminder that sin was a major issue. But I want to just bring across another idea that you and I may not pick up. Because we don't, you know, unfortunately, most of us are not familiar with this ancient language of Greece. Biblical, uh, the language of the New Testament. And what comes out is the word prophet an angel in this first chapter. And the word angel actually means messenger. Okay? So now you have a messenger that's sent from God in, by heaven, right? An angel, a divine messenger. And then you have prophets who are God's people who are moved by the Spirit. We're going to see that in a minute. Human messengers. Now, many times, the only way that we know if it's a divine messenger or a human messenger is by the context. Because the word messenger just comes up as messenger. It doesn't say angel, doesn't say prophet, just says messenger for the most part. Now, there is some distinctions, but for the most part. There, there is you know, a Greek word that says prophet, and there's a Greek word that says angelos, which is angel. But let me just say it to this way. The context is what decides it. And it's interesting that in the book of Revelation, and some of you are maybe acquainted with the first three chapters, there's letters written to the churches. And it says, and if you look it up, chapters 2 and chapters 3, it says, and to the angel at Ephesus, or to the what? The messenger at Ephesus. And many people believe that when John was receiving this revelation, he was to write this and pass it on to the angel in heaven? No. It was the messenger, the angel of Ephesus is actually the pastor. He's the messenger. And so how many are getting an idea that there's, it's almost a synonymous term, this prophet, this angel. And it's very important we understand this because a lot of times uh, there's a little bit of confusion in people's minds. And so what people tend to do many times is that we tend to elevate angelic visitations and prophetic messages even above the person of Jesus Christ. And that's what I want us to focus on today. Let's take a look here at chapter one. In this first chapter, we're immediately struck with the greatness and the uniqueness of the Lord Jesus Christ. In the writer's absolutely powerful beginning, we're encouraged with, with this element of Jesus. And here we see that Jesus is seen as the God's ultimate communication to humanity or to mankind. Jesus, then, is greater than all the prophets that came before him. Jesus is God's final word to mankind. And so, in, if we reject what Christ has to say, we're actually rejecting God's message to us. And so anybody that comes along and says, you know, I've got a message that's beyond the Bible, you know, 
I had this discussion this week. One of our staff members said, yeah, pastor, I was talking to somebody, and they said, there's, you know, there's a, a message and revelation. It's beyond the scriptures. And I'm going to tell you right now, when it gets beyond the scriptures, you're in trouble. Okay? Because you see, next week, I'm going to talk about two elements of the Christian life. This week, I want to talk about what we call the objective side. In other words, we need to have our heads in the right place. We need to be thinking about our faith. It has to, our experience has to come back to the scripture. You see, now, on the, next week I want to talk about Christians who have all the right head stuff, but they don't have any experience. I think we need to have an encounter with God. It needs to be experiential in nature. It needs to be subjective. It needs to impact us. But, you know, you got, we always have, tend to have extremes in our lives. Some people are very, you know, subjective in nature, and they really like experiences, and so they're not too worried about the objectivity of what's going on, and, and so they, they want to just continue on floating in the experience. And I'm saying, listen, you know, Satan masquerades as a what? An angel. Woo! So I don't always get excited when people say, well, I just had an angelic visitation. I'm, I'm, I'm more curious to find out what did the angel say. Because you see, you have to bring back the experience to the Word of God. Otherwise, you could be starting a whole new religion. And there are a number of religions out there, you know, that were started by angelic visitations that brought revelation. And these were angels of light, and people embraced it. And there are whole systems in our world today founded by angelic visitations. And that happened after Jesus came. So I think it's important we get back to an objectivity. We need to get back to the Word of God. We need to understand what the Scriptures are teaching here. And so it starts here uh, in verse chapter 1, verse 1. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers. Now, that's interesting. God wants to communicate to humanity. I like that. He created us. But he wants to relate to us. There wants to be a relationship with us. And he's a communicating God. It says he spoke to our forefathers through the messengers, the prophets, at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, notice that word, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. And what I'm trying to bring out today is the son and his message is superior to any of the other messengers, including angels. That's what you and I need to hear this morning. We need to get that part. Now, it says, here we see the ways God spoke in times past. He spoke through men. Yeah, we're called prophets. And it starts out in Peter. He says, above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. For prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. In other words, the Spirit of God filled the prophet, and he spoke to his generation. And he spoke to specific issues. But here's the thing you and I need to know, and it's exciting, that many of the things that they were saying, they did not know at the time that they had huge, many times, ramifications to the future beyond their circumstance and were actually Christological in nature. In other words, they had fulfillment in the person of Jesus Christ. And then we see in the New Testament, as these New Testament writers look back through the, the, the avenue of seeing the life and death of Jesus Christ, they can look backwards and now look at their own Bible and say, now I get it. And I read one today, Psalm 2. When you read Psalm 2, it sounds like it's a coronation psalm for a king. And it is. 
But it's talking about an anointed one. And so a, a person in that generation might just think of the king that's being anointed. But as you and I look through the lens of history, through the lens of Christ, we begin to realize that he's also talking about the Son of God. And notice here in chapter 1, it says in verse 5, For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have become your father. Or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. Words he, he's quoting from the psalm that we just read. In other words, that Jesus is actually called the Son of God. And Jesus himself called himself the son of man. It's interesting. He called himself the son. And there's a unique relationship. And in that psalm it says, we need to kiss the son. What does that mean, kiss? It means that's, that word is literally the word we get worship. We need to worship the son. We're admonished by the psalmist to worship the son. So how many are beginning to understand now that this is very significant? The son is a very significant person in the Bible. And last week I brought out the, the parable that, that God was going to, you know, that Jesus told about going away for a long time and then coming back. And then it said the landowner sent many messengers to collect the rent and everybody, they ignored all those messengers. And then the, the landowner said, I'm going to send the son. And then they said, oh, we're going to kill the son because he's the heir. And they did. And that's exactly what happened. They killed Christ. He was the son. This is what we're talking about this morning. So God spoke to these men at many times and in various ways. And so we read the Old Testament. We see some of these ways. He spoke in visions, dreams, person to person. He spoke in symbols and in type. You know, even the things like the priesthood speaks of God, you know, communicating. I mean, just even institutions like the priesthood or the sacrifices or the tabernacle were all pictures pointing to the person and the work of Jesus Christ. So who were these people? And how did God reveal his will to them? Well, he appeared to Abraham. Remember it was called, he appeared to, you know, Stephen in his defense about his teaching before the parliament, the Jewish parliament called the Sanhedrin, he said this, and to this you reply, brothers, fathers, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. In other words, God revealed himself in the midst of a, what we would consider a pagan culture, an idolatrous culture. They worshiped many gods. Ancient peoples, by the way, none of them were agnostic. They all believed in the gods. They just believed in many gods. But Abraham now is in the middle of this culture and it says the God of glory appeared to him and he somehow revealed himself to Abraham and called him out of that land and called him to the promised land and he had a revelation of who God, who God is. It's very powerful. Then we read that God appeared to Moses in a burning bush that wasn't being consumed. That's a different manifestation, you know. How many here, you've seen a burning bush and it's not being burnt, you know? And then the voice starts speaking out of the bush. That'd probably get somebody's attention. I would probably get my attention. Would I get your attention? Got Moses' attention and it changed his whole life. He had been in the backside of the desert for 40 years taking care of sheep when this happened. And God led him to be a liberator of his people. And we know the story if you read the book of Exodus. And then we read that God spoke to Elijah in a gentle whisper. It says, and, and God spoke after this uh, great confrontation with the prophets of Baal, and then Jezebel threatens his life, and he runs away. And then we hear this little story. And the Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. And then a great and powerful wind tore the rocks apart, shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, 
He pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mount of the cave. And then a voice said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? And so how did God speak to Elijah? In a gentle whisper. How many are getting an idea now that God's already starting to speak to people in different ways? That's what I'm trying to bring across, the point. He's, he's talking in various ways to different people. God spoke to Ezekiel through a vision of light, glowing metal. And he describes it as four living creatures, the face appearing as a man, a lion, an ox, and an eagle. And uh, God was giving a clear picture of what was transpiring during a time of judgment and transition that the people were experiencing, brokenness and exile. And God was trying to show them, you know, some powerful things. And, it, you know, it's a different kind of literature, Ezekiel, anyways. But my point is simply this. God spoke to him in a vision. And then, eventually, we read that God spoke to Hosea. And how did he do that? Well, Hosea had a terrible marriage. His wife became unfaithful to him. And he was crushed. She was unfaithful. And God spoke into his heart. He was a prophet. And he said, you know how you feel right now? Your wife's been unfaithful to you. That's how my people have treated me. I am like their heavenly lover, and they have gone after other gods, and they've been unfaithful. They've gone their own way. They've betrayed our covenant, and I'm brokenhearted. And the pain that you're feeling, Hosea, is the pain that I'm feeling. And he spoke out of that brokenness. And so many times, God can speak to us, you know, in different ways. He can speak to us in gentleness. He can speak to us through our human experiences and reveal somewhat of himself to us. But what we need to realize over and over again is simply this, that even though God is still communicating today, he primarily communicates through his son, Jesus Christ. That is God's primary and ultimate and final word to humanity. And we need to get that. And anytime we try to add to that, we get ourselves into big time trouble. Now, you know, I've had the privilege over the years of studying a little bit on revival. And uh, one of the great authors of revival is a man by the name of Jonathan Edwards. He was a pastor. He had experienced revival. He wrote about it. And he writes some very interesting statements about the work of God's Spirit. And this is what he said about the work of God's Spirit. He says this, and I want you to notice how when he, when he says these things, um, how, how he lifts up the person and work of Jesus Christ. And I just wrote down, any message that minimizes the Son is not the voice of God. We need to know that. We need to elevate that voice. So this is, he says this, when the operation is such as to raise the esteem of that Jesus who was born of the Virgin and was crucified without the gates of Jerusalem... That's a little statement from the book of Hebrews. Christ was crucified outside the city walls. He says, It seems more to confirm and establish their minds in the truth of what the gospel declares to us of his being the Son of God and the Savior of man. It is a sure sign that it is from the Spirit of God. In other words, whenever we, under, we hear the message who Jesus truly is, God in the flesh, born of a virgin. See, the, the, the gospel message. Whenever we hear that, we can be assured this is the Spirit of God. Then he says, now, this is when you know the devil's talking. The devil has the most bitter and implacable enmity against that person, speaking of Jesus, especially in his character of the Savior of man. He mortally hates the story and doctrine of his redemption. In other words, he hates the fact that we preach the good news that people can come to Christ and have their sins forgiven. That's, that's, he's opposed to that. And then it says, when the Spirit, he gives another idea, when the Spirit is at work and it operates against the interests of Satan's kingdom. Whenever God's Spirit is at work, it's always operating in opposition to the kingdom of darkness. And here's what the kingdom of darkness operates like. It lies in encouraging and establishing sin. 
So anybody that's encouraging sin, that's the kingdom of darkness. And cherishing men's worldly lust, that's the kingdom of darkness. Then he goes on, this is when you know this is a, a sign, a true sign. See, when the spirit is at work, it says, this is a sure sign that it is true and not a false spirit. In other words, whenever you see the spirit of God confronting the kingdom of darkness, you know that's a true spirit. Then he goes on, the spirit that operates in such a manner as to cause in men a greater regard to the holy scriptures. You know what? If you don't have a love for God's word, that's not a good thing. You should love God's word. You know, there should be a desire for God's word. And I can tell, you know, these are, these are some of the signs when I know the Spirit of God is at work in me and when the Spirit of God is at work in you. When you have a love for God's Word. That's a good thing. That's the work of the Spirit. When it operates as a Spirit of truth, leading persons to truth, convincing them of those things that are true. In other words, you know, how many have ever recognized, you know, you, how many when you hear truth, you go, that's the truth. And then when you hear something that's wrong, you might, you might say, I don't know. I, I don't know. Something's wrong here. I may not be able to figure it out, but whatever's being said, this is not lining up. This is not true. You know what that is? That's the spirit of truth inside of us saying, hey, that's not right. It's pointing it out. And then number five, if the spirit that is at work among a people operates as a spirit of love to God and man, it is a sure sign that it is the spirit of God. Last week I said this. The end result of faith is love. And if I'm growing in love towards people and others, I know that the work of the spirit is at work in my heart. It's a work of God. Isn't that nice? That's beautiful. I mean, you know, how many are, well, that's pretty objective, Pastor. You can actually see the results of these things. So we come to, we make it so mystical. Oh, I can't tell if people are growing. I can tell if they're growing. I can tell when they're growing. I can tell when they have a heart to serve others. I can see them loving people. I can see them forgiving people. I can see them, you know, eat, hungering for the word of God. I go, that's, that's a work of God's spirit in their hearts. When I see people, you know, trapped by sin, desiring to do the wrong thing, ignoring the, the warning of God, doing their own thing, going their own way, being stubborn, not listening, I go, that's the work of Satan in their heart. You go, it's just that simple. Why do we make it so complicated? See, we can actually discern these things. The work of the Holy Spirit is to bring us to Jesus. See, listen to what Jesus writes. When the counselor comes, he's speaking now to the upper room. He's, got, he's saying, I have to leave. Someone like me has to come. Another comforter, he says, another counselor. He says, whom I will send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. Who's, who's speaking here? Jesus. The Holy Spirit is always pointing people to Christ. That's the work of the Spirit. So, you know, there's a lot of people that talk about the work of the Spirit, and they're not pointing anybody to Christ. I go, that's not the work of the Spirit. That's just a bunch of, uh, I don't know what. That, that's a false spirit. That's the wrong spirit. And so we can get so enamored with a new revelation. You know, well, we got books on angels today, and people talking about angels, and talking about spirit guides, and talking about this. And I'm going, so what? You know, that means nothing to me. Talk to me about Jesus. I'm interested. See, that's the work of the Spirit. Let me move on to the second point here. And the second is the uniqueness and the greatness of Jesus is actually seen in his nature. This is the critical element in Christianity. What we believe about Jesus and about what Jesus did defines if I'm a Christian or not. Very important to have a correct understanding as to the person and the work of Jesus Christ. 
Hebrews 1, 1 again. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. And after he had provided purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Now, I want you to notice the phrases expressing and describing the essence of who Jesus is. First of all, he is the heir of all things. Now, let me ask you guys a question. When I say that you just received an inheritance, what do you think? You are now an heir. What do you think? Someone died. Yeah, that's that's probably true. In our modern culture, that's true. What else do you think about being an heir? I'm going to get something, right? Woo! What am I receiving, right? That's how we think. Now, I want to I shift now. Remember, we are not the primary recipients of this sermon. We are secondary recipients. That, that means this was sent to a group of people who lived in the first century. They have a whole different mindset than we do. So let's understand what they understood, and then let's apply it to our life today, Okay. When an ancient person heard the word heir, you know, he's going to inherit. He's the heir. Let me go back into classical Greek and Roman with you for a minute. I actually study under a classic, classicalist. That's somebody who studied the ancient world. This is what he said to us. He said, when an ancient person heard that they were an heir, it meant responsibility. Now, how many have ever seen any of the movies The Godfather? Or you know about the mafia. Anybody know about that stuff? Am I, anybody? Can you just wave? Yeah, pastor, we don't think. Okay. Do you understand that the godfather is the patriarch of the family? In the first century, the godfather, the patriarch, had the, he could speak life or death. If you were, let's say my age, I have a grown son. Let's say I have a grown son. I could say, You've disgraced me, you're going to die. I could have you killed, nobody would punish me. I have that kind of authority. I have life and death authority over every member of my household and every member of my slaves. And I am a patron to many people. And every morning I would get up in the morning and I would come out and all of these people that were depending on me for, for favors and good things, I would come out and listen and help them out. I was their patron. You see how the Godfather idea takes off from this? This is the Roman idea. Now, listen to this. I could be a grown son. My father maybe says, you know what? I am now making you the heir. You are now, I'm putting you in charge of everything. You now have the responsibility of operating everything I'm doing. That's a heavy responsibility. And so when Jesus is called the heir here, it says here, he's the heir of all things. What he is communicating to us is that he has a responsibility to care for the family and all the obligations that entails. And so Jesus makes himself responsible for us. And because you and I were trapped in sin, Jesus went out and paid the penalty for our sin. That's an amazing thought. This is what John Calvin writes. He says, 
The name heir is attributed to Christ as manifest in the flesh. For in being made man and putting on the same nature as us, he took upon himself this heirship in order to restore to us what we had lost in Adam. That's powerful. Now, I think there are benefits to being an heir. Don't misunderstand, but this is a part we don't get. We don't normally understand this part because we don't think this way. Our sonship and inheritance only comes as we are in Christ because apart from him, there is no sonship and no inheritance. Remember it says in Romans, Paul says, you are now a joint heir with Christ. And so our, our inheritance comes because we are in Christ. When we become a believer in Christ, we receive the benefits that Christ brought for us, purchased for us. Okay, he goes on, he says, he's the radiance of God's glory. For the Hebrew people, the glory of God was a visible and outward expression of the majestic presence of God. It's interesting, in the Old Testament, you never see God. You see manifestations, you see attributes, you, you see reflections of who he is. You know, the cloud by day, the fire by night. Um, you know, Moses says, I want to see God. God puts him in the cleft of the rock. Remember, he walks by and he says, I am this, I am that. You know, that's what you're, you know, it's a reflection. We have a statement that says that Jesus is the exact radiance of God's glory. Now, John writes this in his gospel. This is beautiful. It says, the word became flesh. You could also, in, you could translate this, the word tabernacled among us. Now, when you read the Old Testament, there's a story where God tells Moses, I want you to build a tabernacle. And you read it in Exodus chapter 25 to verses 40. They build this tabernacle and all of these furniture, and they put it in this tabernacle, and then there's sacrifices, and eventually in the most holiest of all places is where God's presence is, okay? That is called the tabernacle. That is where God's glory dwelt, okay? That's where God's glory dwelt among the nation of Israel, is in the tabernacle. You follow this? So what does John write to us? The word tabernacled among us, or became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. What is John telling you? Jesus is the glory of God. When you see Jesus, you're actually seeing God. Now, I said this to the first service people. I said, now think about this. How many here... There's a somebody out there that you would consider a celebrity. Somebody, I mean, who, who would be somebody, if you had dinner with this afternoon, you'd be phoning your relatives to let them know you had dinner with them or her? Queen. The queen. So for you, yeah, I just had dinner with the queen. That would be pretty good. <laughs> be right up there. Anybody else? You know, anybody? Who, who would you like to have dinner with this afternoon? You like, Steve? You've already had the queen. How many people do you want there, Donovan? He, he wants everybody. Somebody else, give me another name. Chuck Morris. You want Chuck Morris. Okay. What was the other one? Angelina Jolene. Okay, we're moving on. My point is this. We can, we can come up with anybody you want. You can go, oh, in the first service, somebody want to have dinner with Oprah. I'm just, hey, whoever, you, you know, it's, it's who you think is important. 
you think is special. You know, I'm having dinner with this person. Can I just say something to us? We are so funny. These guys, the, the disciples, they were having dinner every day with God. They were walking around every single day with God. How many think that's pretty good? They, you, know, you know, Jesus would say, hey, they were going to go to this next town, and pretty soon you never knew what was going to happen when you're walking with Jesus. How many know that's true? You didn't know if you're going to have people getting fed miraculously or somebody rising from the dead or somebody healed, right? You just never knew what was going to happen. You were walking with God. You know, how many say, if I could just set a little time capsule, I just dial right in, I'm going to walk with Jesus. Isn't that great? You don't even have to do that. Listen to this. Jesus says, it's really important that I leave because I can't be with you at all times in a body. But I'm going to go so that the Holy Spirit can come and live inside of you. So where is God living now? In us. So every single day, you and I are eating and walking with God Almighty. But we forget that. And we're so enamored with human personality, with angels and prophets and prophecies, that we cannot even appreciate that we have God within us. That's ultimate. That's the ultimate. God in us. I'm going, wow. We should be walking around going, this is amazing. Every day I walk with God. Every day I talk to God. Every day when I pick up my Bible and start reading, God's talking to me. Yeah. You know, we should be excited about this stuff. Right. See, I'm just kind of pointing it out to us today. Everyone goes, oh yeah, that's right. Click, 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 click. But I'm just trying to stir up our minds. Hey, you're walking with a celebrity every day. The ultimate person of the universe is living inside of you. It should be a little thrilling, yeah. you know? You know, these, all these other people, they do mess up in life. You know, I've discovered that with people. They can be a disappointment. You get to know them and you go, I thought they were like this and I'm a little disappointed in them. But I've discovered one thing. I'm not disappointed with God. The longer I've walked with them, the more impressed I am with him. I'm more amazed all the time. I'm more excited today than I've ever been in my entire life. I'm getting to know him. And most of us, we're not spending time getting to know the most important person. I'm trying to encourage you. Get to know him. It's amazing. What a journey you could be on. Oh, that's good. I, I like this. This is good preaching. <laughs> Move on. Well, listen what he, he he's, he's the exact representation, it says, of his being. Speaking of Christ, it says, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really knew me, you would know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. And I love Philip. Lord, just show us the Father. And that'll, that'll be enough. That'll satisfy me. And uh, Jesus said, well, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. What is Jesus saying? If you're seeing me, you're seeing God. Wow. Yeah. How can you say to us, show us the Father? You've been seeing the Father because I'm the exact representation. You're seeing God the whole time. I'm impressed with Jesus, folks. I really am. Are you getting a picture? The final word, according to the writer, is Jesus. The final message is Jesus. And we're so crazy, we're going after all kinds of substandard junk, and we're thinking, oh, this is a deeper mystery. Well, it'll sink your boat. That's what it'll do. You know, let me move on to the final aspect here. And it's simply the, his work, Jesus. What makes him unique? 
There are a number of things in these verses that describe the work of Christ which is different than what anyone else can or has ever done. It is through Jesus that the universe was made. Hey, that's pretty good. I know the God that made the universe. I had dinner, I had breakfast this morning with the guy that made the universe. Are you guys impressed? So did you, if you're a believer. You know, think about it. It says here in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2, it says, through whom he made the universe. And John, he says, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God, and he was with God in the beginning, and through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. He is the creator. Colossians says it this way. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. That word firstborn means not that he's created, but that he is in the position of preeminence. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or authorities, rulers or authorities. All things were created by him and for him. Now let me just take a little moment and explain something to you. And this is going to really bless you. It's blessing me. In the Greek understanding, see, the Hebrews believed God created the universe. God created earth. God created man. What did he say in Genesis? And it was good, right? But the Greeks didn't think that way. The Greeks believed in a whole bunch of gods. The Greeks believed that the material body matter was evil. And so Plato, in the 5th century before Christ, was teaching that you know, that the immaterial world, the spiritual world was good and the material world was evil. That's called Platonism, okay? Now, what you need to understand is by the first century, Jewish thought was now syncretizing with Greek thought or Hellenistic thought. What happens when we start integrating a wrong viewpoint in, from, into a right viewpoint? It corrupts the viewpoint. And so now you have a corrupted understanding and so this has really got me excited because when you're reading the New Testament, you have to understand that Paul and other writers were speaking to a people that had a mindset that went something like this. There is God, there's the created world. God is good, the created world is evil. God can't create evil, therefore God didn't create the created world. There's intermediaries between God and the created world. And those intermediaries are called, and we just read it, powers rulers, authorities are the intermediaries. They're divine beings. We would either call them angels or demons. Are you following this? And so what is these writers are saying? That Jesus' name is above every name. Because in their minds, they believe that names had authority and power. That if you spoke in the name of a certain uh, authority or power or ruler, you were speaking on behalf of them and you had authority, their authority to have things happen. That's why you read so much in the scriptures by the name of Jesus. It's explaining to you that Jesus is above every name. There is no other name given among men which whereby we must be saved. There's no other name. People can be saved. There's no other deity. There's no other authority. There's no other ruler. As a matter of fact, what he's basically telling these guys is stop focusing on all of these things. Now, isn't this interesting? Look at verse 14 of chapter 1. You know, I've looked at this chapter over and over in my life. I always thought, why is this verse just pop in there? But look what it says. He goes on in verse 4, it says, 
And then we'll get to verse 14. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. And then he goes on to say in verse 5, for to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have become your father. In other words, the angels are not the son. Angels are below the son. As a matter of fact, their name is not superior to his name. His name is above their name. And then he goes on to say in verse 14, are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who inherit? salvation. Now in Greek mythology, human beings served angels, but here he's telling us that the angels serve human beings. It's reversed. And so what is he really saying to us? He's saying, don't worry about the angels. It's no biggie. And so stop being so impressed. Listen, you want to be impressed? Be impressed by the sun. Okay? And so, you know, don't, you don't have to buy any more books about this angel and this angel does this and this angel. I, listen, I was down there. I had to do as an assignment. You know, this angel will take care of this problem and this angel will take care of that problem and this angel does this for you. And I'm going, I don't need those angels because I have the one who is above the angels. As a matter of fact, he is the one that's commanding angels to take care of me. I just need to focus on the one person. His name is Jesus. Hallelujah. Is this encouraging? So, you know, the people that are walking around talking about angels, I go, I know someone greater than the angels. I know the greatest one. They'll say, who's that? I'll say, his name is Jesus. You know, amen? It's like the guy that approached me in Jamaica said, you know, you want to buy some dope? I said, I got something better than that. He says, what's that? I said, I've got Jesus. (laughs) See, that was not a great answer. I don't need that stuff. I got something greater. I want to declare to you, if you've got Jesus, you've got it all. You've got the ultimate. You know? So don't go looking for junk. Don't go for substitutes. Don't go for angels. Don't go for a whole bunch of prophecies that a lot of times are a bunch of nonsense. Fix your eyes on Jesus. The author and the finisher of your faith. You want to make it to heaven? Just stay with Jesus. I guarantee you, at the end of the day, you will be in heaven with Jesus because you, you are with Jesus on the journey. Yes. That's simple. That's what he was trying to tell these guys. He goes on here. I, I ran out of time. That's okay. I'll just skip all this good stuff. And there is some good stuff. I just ran out of time, you know. I could preach for a long time, believe it or not. They could, <laughs> you're, you're laughing because you know it's true. <laughs> It's through Christ that our sins have been purified. Only Christ's sacrifice was eternally effective. He sat down to indicate that the work was finished. Remember when he's on the cross, it is finished? Somebody said, they had a discussion after the first service because somebody thought what Jesus meant was, I'm done. No! It's not what it means. It means it is finished means I've accomplished all that I've set out to do for you. It's completed. I have fulfilled the demands of the law. I am the ultimate sacrifice for your sins. I have purified you from sin. And now he can sit down because his work of redemption is finished. All we need to do is accept it. Isn't that encouraging? Hallelujah. I love this. So what is this author trying to convey to us here in these opening verses? It's all about Jesus. Let's stand. See, I even know how to stop. 
There are so many voices today trying to lure us away from the simplicity that is found in Jesus Christ. You go, well, pastor, I have an insatiable desire to learn. Join my club. I am a lifelong learner, but I want to just give you the good news. If that's who you are, join me, because I've been studying this Bible diligently for almost 40 years, and I'm learning new things about Jesus all the time. I'm learning new things about his word all the time. I'm learning, I'm, I'm getting a deeper understanding of who he is. You can continue to learn. Just don't go off on those dog trails. You know, you know what I'm saying? Don't, don't go off on this heavy stuff that, you know, you think, oh, I just read this great book. You know, they got, this guy's talking to angels. Well, you know, Muhammad talked to angels too. Yeah. Just pointing these things out to us, okay? So let's, let's just stick to Jesus. You know, we sang some beautiful songs today. You know, it was a song that says, just give me Jesus. That's, that's my prayer. Just give me Jesus. And the Hebrew writer, he closes in chapter 12 with this beautiful sentiment. I love it. It says, fix your eyes on Jesus. The author and the finisher of our faith. And that's my prayer for you. I guarantee you, if you will lock into him, he will take you all the way. Amen? Father, I just thank you this morning. What an awesome God you are. And I pray today that if there's things that we've been dallying into and reading about and we're getting excited, but it's not really the final word, which is about you. And it's leading us off into some trail that's going to lead us away from you. Father, I pray today that this will be a wake-up call, that we will gain a renewed hunger to seek your face, to have our eyes upon you to discover you anew and afresh, to fall in love with you all over again because you are amazing. And to be so impressed with you and so less impressed with everything else. Lord, help us to stop being so impressed with these other things and to be really focused on you. And we just thank you for that this morning in Jesus' name, amen. God bless you as you leave this morning.
And this psalm speaks about him. So it starts, Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? Let us break their chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. Then he rebukes them in his anger and terrifies. 